page fright is recorded on the unceded territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh peoples. These territories were stolen, and they are now the space where I inhabit and live. Um, but the guests you're hearing on this podcast often come from different territories across what is now known as Canada. I encourage our guests, and I encourage you as well listening at home, to take a moment to consider the territory you're on, its history, and how you might have come to belong here. Right. My name is Andrew French. Um, I don't know if it's Twitter anymore, but I'm on Instagram for sure at Andrew W. French. And this, of course, is the only podcast in the world that I host. It's a literary podcast. It's called Page Fright. And it's a space that I'm thrilled to have you back to for another episode. This one is really special. Um, it is really cool to me to think about talking to this author for the first time. So Chris Banks is today's guest. And I, I've spoken to him before. We talked to him, my guess is 10 to 15 episodes ago, maybe a little bit longer. Time is a weird thing. Um, but it was about his book, Deep Fake Serenade, which is out with Nightwood Editions. And, and this one's also out with Nightwood. It's called Alternator. It's a fantastic book. And I recommend you read it and you buy it and you buy multiple copies of it so that if you lose one, you can read it again. Um, it's a fantastic book. And uh, Chris is a great author. And uh, just just a nice guy too, like like genuinely, really one of the sweetest people that I get to interview. Um, there's nothing cooler than reading a book and having some questions about it, being able to ask those questions. Um, but it gets even better when you finish an episode and feel like you've learned something either about yourself or about the author, about the world, on a different level, on a personal level. And uh, that was how I felt when I talked to Chris the first time, and so. You know, I was really excited to chat with him again, and, and this episode and this interview had me reflecting a lot about, you know, how I might have changed since we talked last time, and I talk about my sobriety a little bit in this episode because when I talked to Chris the first time, I was just kind of starting that journey, getting along the road, and uh, his poetry touched on it and was some of the first poetry I started reading about sobriety as somebody who was trying to be sober. Um... And so it, it was very, very meaningful to me to sit down with him again and have this space to reflect. Um, it, it was really cool. I won't go on and on and on because I do that in the interview. That's kind of my job. Um, so I'll call it there, but I do need to add a little bit of housekeeping, one note for you. Um, actually, two notes. Number one, this episode was meant to be one of two in October. There will probably still be two, but it might be like really late because this is the 20th when I'm putting this out. Um, but I got a concussion. And I had to push recording on the other one after I recorded this one. And then it took me a while to edit this one because I couldn't be on screens and it was a whole thing. So still recovering from that concussion. We're on the road. We're, we're getting there. This is number too many, um, more than I'm willing to admit, um, of, of concussions. And um, so I'm getting better at healing from them, I guess. But yeah, the, the first housekeeping note is that I owe you an episode and there will be one extra um, coming soon because we missed September and I've missed you and I hope you've missed this podcast too. Um, the other housekeeping note is that about halfway through this interview, uh, I asked Chris about nostalgia. I asked him about it four times because our audio kept dropping. He was kind enough to keep jumping back on the call and then we switched to Zoom and then it worked there and it was a whole thing. So you shouldn't notice a difference there, but if the answer seems a little different from the question, that's what's going on there. Um, just a heads up. Okay. You're like, Andrew, we know it's all good. We just want to hear the interview, get to the interview. So I will. But the only thing I have to do before that is let you know who Chris Banks is. So if you haven't listened to the last episode I did with Chris, let me tell you about him. Chris Banks is a Canadian poet and the author of seven, seven guys, seven collections of poetry. Most recently, Deep Fake Serenade by Nightwood Editions in 2021. That's what we talked to Chris about last time he was on. His first full-length collection, Bonfires, was awarded the Chuck Chalmers Award for Poetry by the Canadian Authors Association in 2004. Bonfires was also a finalist for the Gerald Lampert Memorial Award for Best First Book of Poetry in Canada. His poetry has appeared in The New Quarterly, ARC Magazine, The Antigonish Review, Event, The Malahat Review, Griffel, American Poetry Journal, and Prism International, 
among other publications. He lives and writes in Kitchener, Ontario, and I'm going to add to this written bio that his new book is called Alternator. It's out with Nightwood Editions, and I suggest you check it out. Here I am chatting with Chris Banks. Here we are with Chris Banks chatting for a new episode of Page Fright. Chris, how's it going? It's going really well. My book doesn't really come out, I think, for another week and a half. But it's so good to be here with you, Andrew, talking about Alternator, my new poetry collection out with Nightwood Editions. Yeah, so the book is called Alternator. This is your, I want to say, is it five or six? Is this six? This is number seven, actually. Seven? Oh my god, okay, I'm way off. Well, <laughs> I, I thoroughly enjoyed this one. I'm super excited to talk about it. Of course, we had you on a little while ago. I was looking back, it was longer ago than I thought, but we had you on to talk about Deep Fake Serenade. Um, That's correct. Which was another really, really fun book that I, I was super excited to talk about. And this one, same thing, super stoked to talk about it. I want to get into it and ask you all sorts of questions. But before we do that, for listeners who might not be acquainted with your work, could I get you to read a poem for us? Yeah, absolutely. So I, I thought uh, since I'm going to do th three short readings during this podcast that I would uh, start with a poem from the beginning of the book and then my second reading would be from the middle of the book and the third reading would be uh, from later in the book. And this book is divided into three sections. That's sort of why I've called it Alternator and each section has its own sort of form and we can talk about that later if you wish. So yeah. uh, this is a sort of a, like, a, I don't know what you would call it. It's a section of my long poem, Core Samples of the Late Capitalist Dream. And uh, it, the, each section are, of that long poem is six, uh, are six couplets. And so th they're not named. So I'll just read you one from the middle. Maybe I need another tattoo. Maybe you do. A snake wrapped around a sword or perhaps a skull. A memento mori commemorating democracy. I keep hoping for a Groupon for world peace. Alas, no one gets a discount on pain. I love the marquee of tattoo parlors. The high vaulted ceilings of the universe. The Sistine Chapel. Just don't ask me to paint it. Real estate prices are core samples of the late capitalist dream. A school needs a new name, one not linked to genocide. But don't worry, the mascot is still there cheering you from the sidelines. So there you go. There's a poem for you. Thank you. Yeah, I was going to ask about the form of the book and, and the way that you've laid it out because it's super interesting to me. Of course, uh, if you've read the book, you will know this, but of course, we're putting this episode out maybe possibly before the book is out. Um, so you might not have read this. Of course, as Chris said, it's split into three sections. The first one is this kind of long poem that's divvied up into to various sections. And one of them Chris just read, and it was one of my favorite parts of that longer poem. So I'm really glad you chose that. Um, specifically love the keep hoping for a Groupon for world peace. Yeah, that was one of my favorite, favorite couplets, I guess, or lines. It's not a couplet, but lines from the poem. Um, mm -hmm. So that's great that you went with that. And I wanted to ask um, if you have kind of played with long poems before this book and how you know or think, because it's hard to know, that you've got a long poem on your hands as a writer. Oh, wow. Okay. So first of all, I don't really divvy around or play around with long poems. But what happened with this book is I handed in two manuscripts to my publisher, one uh, manuscript which was full of 30 to 32 lines, sort of these long, lanky poems that were, you were first introduced to in uh, Deep Fake Serenade and, and somewhat in my other book, Midlife Action Figure. Uh, and then another manuscript of poems that were sort of narrative sonnets. And uh, Silas White at Nightwood Edition said, hey, listen, why don't we simmer down each of these manuscripts because you're so prolific into sections of a book and why don't you write some short poems you don't write short poems and and so I thought about that and I really didn't like what he was saying to me at the time uh, I don't really like to write short poems so I decided I would write short sections of a long poem and the idea of a long poem uh, 
really piqued my curiosity. And so I started writing. I decided just on like an artificial restraint, which was six uh, couplets. Okay. Uh, so six stanzas of two lines each. And that I would try to write as many as I could. And then I would try to put them in some sort of semblance of an order. And that became this sort of longer work called uh, Core Samples of the Late Capitalist Dream. And so I'm actually very happy with how the book turned out. Uh, and I think it was a really smart idea on, the, on uh, Silas's part to kind of just challenge me to do something I haven't done before. Yeah, no, I, I really like the idea of trying this this format. And in fact, it's it's very interesting to me that your publisher goes, hey, Chris, we want you to write some short poems. And you're like, OK, I'm going to write a long poem made of short poems. Right. Uh, which is I, which I is tried really to meet him, tried to meet him halfway. You know, that's so. that's right. Yeah, no, that's great. And, and I think it works really well. I really enjoyed reading through and, and I wanted to ask, too, about like what drew you to using couplets for this section? Well, you know, I teach guzzles uh, or guzzles, but I guess they're, you know, you pronounce it guzzles um, and to high school students because high school students are very uh, trepidatious about writing poems, especially if they've never written poems before. And I do this sort of a guzzle exercise of five to six um, stanzas, two lines each. And the fact that each sort of couplet or two lines doesn't really have to go with the next uh, is very freeing. It's very liberating, right? So I kind of put my money where my mouth was and said I should really try to write some of these things. But of course, I break rules and, you know, some couplets sort of spill over into the next couplet. But that's that's fine. But honestly, I just decided, yeah, six couplets, that's going to be the form I'm going to work in. Interesting. So it was kind of just uh, a, almost a random choice to give yeah, that restraint. Absolutely, yeah, absolutely. I was just was setting out the project and I knew I wanted to work with a form. So I, so I said, okay, we're going to try six, see where this goes. And I wrote about 35 and I think 18 or 19 of them actually made it into the book. So, Wow. So I, I wanted to ask a little bit, this is, you've kind of touched on this already, but one of the things that I really liked, and I noted this about your writing, and I'm sure I asked you, as I will probably do, a very similar question the last time we spoke, but um, what I am really blown away by when I read your writing is your ability to stay on one topic while also jumping from topic to topic to topic. Um, what I mean by that is, you know, a poem, especially like this longer poem, um, can have an overall sort of overarching idea, but there's also these images and ideas that pop up along the way. And I, I find it really, really cool. And honestly, something that I'm super jealous of as a writer, that you're able to just kind of jump from idea to idea so freely in your writing. Yes. Um, and so I wanted to ask about this. Um, I suppose my question really is, when do you know it's time to shift to a new image? And how do you balance having what what I feel as a reader often? I mean, it works really well. But as a writer, I'm scared to write poems like this because I'm scared I'm going to have so much going on that I <laughs> that it's hard to keep track of. And so I'm wondering, let's start with the question, how you know it's time to shift to a new image? Well, that's a good, very good question. I'm not sure if I ever really know, uh, okay. but I do feel that uh, I just follow where the poem wants to go. And for me, I always like to have a solid dominant image or solid uh, title or a solid first couple of lines to sort of be my base. And uh, I, I often come back to those first couple of lines or that dominant image or the title somewhere in the ending. So in between, I like to fly around a little bit and, uh, and yeah, I just follow where my brain tells me to go. But I do notice uh, when I'm editing and I, I tend to edit very quickly and very forcefully. And I can often feel it's more of a feeling than a thought when uh, a part of the, the poem is feeling a little heavy, a little weighty, like there's too much there. And so I will edit it down a little bit or I might take a line or two out. And of course, the poem just absorbs the uh, you know the incision that you've made into it and and that's just 
how I write poems. I, I It's very fluid. I tend to write pretty quickly. I don't labor over poems the way I did when I was young. You know, in a book like Winter Cranes, I labored over all of those poems. And I think that shows in, in some of them where I'm working with a 10-syllable line or a 7-syllable line because you can't, your brain doesn't think like that. But with these poems, they're sort of very quick associate associations that I'm making between uh, images and ideas and uh, persons and places and things. Uh, and so I think it works, but how I do it, I, it's a mystery. <laughs> yeah, no, that's, that's super interesting to hear. And I think there's maybe the thing that I'm jealous of, let's go with that to start mm-hmm. there. The thing that I'm jealous of is the willingness and ability to jump freely from idea to idea. And, and I think that's something that comes I would imagine, and you can tell me if I'm right or wrong on this, from being a little bit more secure in your writing. And it sounds like that's something that has come up for you through your writing career is less laboring over the amount of syllables in a line and more focusing on, okay, what do we do with the next part? Where does the poem want to go? Those sorts of things and giving yourself the liberty to do that. Is that kind of accurate? That is exactly how I do it. And uh, I think it, you know, it's safe to say between 2009 and, and 2015, I didn't write very much at all. Uh, I was very sort of depressed. I had major depression and, uh, you know, there were a lot of things going on, but I was only writing maybe three poems a year. And I felt terrible about that because I really saw myself as a poet who was not writing. And so after separating and dealing with, you know, alcohol dependence and uh, uh, getting sober and doing all the things that I I was supposed to do and and then facing down the idea of a new book, I really, at that time, decided I really like to write. Uh, I wanted to now, I had nothing to lose. No one was waiting for another book by Chris Banks. So I just decided to really go for it really put my fears, my insecurities, my anxieties aside, and just really try to uh, write a book very quickly. And at that point, I had about a third of a manuscript done. And then I wrote two thirds of a manuscript in about three three months. And uh, that was really liberating. That was very exciting. The feeling was electric. Uh, and so I wrote... Uh, a midlife action figure in about six months. It took me about half a year to write that whole book. Uh, and so I've, I've sort of really from about 2015, 2016, I've been writing very consistently all the time and very prolifically and, and sometimes very quickly. Um, so yeah, like even though Alternator is out, I have two thirds of another manuscript already done, which is a, a great feeling. And uh, I'll be working on that for probably another year, maybe another year and a half. I wrote a nonfiction book of essays <laughs> last year. Uh, so I, I just do a lot of writing. Yeah. And I wanted to ask, uh, mm-hmm. as soon as you said this, about being a poet who has written three poems a year. Yeah. And being a writer who's not writing. Right. Um, because... Uh, full transparency it's where i'm at right now i i feel i feel bad about it like you said there's a feeling of guilt and there's a feeling of like almost identity loss because it's like well i'm a writer that's part of my identity Mm -hmm. but i'm not doing the writing so am i really a writer like how does that work out um and and i guess like what made you or brought you back to writing i guess that that sense of like giving yourself space and and being kind to yourself and saying run with it and roll with it. But what else would you say for somebody who wants to get back to writing? I think an important thing is for me uh, was I had two good friends and those friends were Rob Taylor. Rob, uh, you know, solicited some poems from me uh, for Prism International. And then I started writing a, a lot just simply because I have this good friend who wants to see some new poems from me. Uh, Mm -hmm. And then I did a little chat book with Jim Johnstone of Ann Struther Press. And that really helped hook me back into into writing. Uh, Of course, I think very simple things like maybe, you know, investing in a three-year 
subscription to the Malahat Review, but also American Poetry Review. And that's where you're going to learn about who's up and coming in the States. And for me, I had always not really understood Dean Young at all. Uh, he was not someone I, I, I particularly liked. Uh, but then I read The Art of Recklessness by Dean Young, his book of essays on form. And that was just an epiphany that went through me like a lightning bolt. And then all of a sudden, his work that I always found so um, hard to grasp, uh, so obscure, was all of a sudden very exciting, very fresh, you know, like full of surprises, full of new ideas, new imagery. And uh, and I kind of just bounced off of his poetry and the poetry of someone like Bob Hickok. Bob has become... Uh, a sort of close uh, online friend, I suppose. We trade, you know, emails back and forth several times a year. Uh, and so uh, that gave me a lot of uh, fresh thinking and, and confidence to move forward. Yeah, I, I love that. And uh, also shout out to Rob Taylor and Jim Johnstone, who are both people whose writing I admire. And we've had Rob on the show. Would love to have Jim on here someday. Um, but they're they're both fantastic writers and big parts yes. of the Canadian poetry community. So shout out to them. Um, <laughs> I, I have a question for you, Chris, from sure. my last episode's guest. Okay. Um, so last time I was on here, it was a while ago, uh, but the last time I was on Page Fright talking, I talked to Brandy Bird about their new collection. And uh, Brandy has a question, not knowing that it was going to be you, but a question for you. And the question okay. is... What is your favorite comfort movie? My favorite comfort movie would have been, oh gosh, that's a hard one, right? Uh, <laughs> but like one of my favorite movies of all time was Brazil. Uh, Brazil? And Brazil by Terry Gilliam. And in fact, I've got a poem, I believe it's in Deep Fake Serenade about, uh, yeah, Brazil. It was called On Narrative. And I'm talking about that sequence. There's a sequence where the actor Jonathan Price is playing, uh, uh, it, he's daydreaming and he's daydreaming himself in this Birdman costume, and he's you know flying through these huge blocks of granite that are exploding into the sky. And I just remember being nineteen and being so blown away by this film. It's kind of a dark, satirical uh, nineteen eighty four, <laughs> you know, with you know with uh, comedy. Interspersed. Who would who would write a dystopian comedy? But but Terry Gilliam <laughs> of uh, Monty Python. So I often, when I'm very nostalgic and looking for something, I often go back to that particular film. But also a secret film that I watch over and over again is Master and Commander with. Uh, <laughs> the great Australian actor, um, Russell Crowe. And why, I don't know. I don't like, you know, military things per se, but <laughs> I love that. I love that movie. So interesting. I, okay. Yeah. So I think, I think the first, I, so full disclosure, haven't seen Brazil. Gonna okay. have to, um, but from what you've described of it, it leads mm -hmm. perfectly into a question I had for you, oh, which, okay. which again, yeah, which again is, is about your work. You said who else would write something like that? Well, my immediate thought from what you've just told me about it is you might, because yeah. Chris, uh, your, your poems very much are a mix of, uh, you know, themes that can be a little bit heavier, a little bit more difficult, or you're thinking about, let's say like late stage capitalism in the first one. Mm -hmm. um, but it's got all this humor interspersed, these clever lines, like all of these things that make these themes more manageable. Um, right. And, and I'm wondering, like, is that a conscious effort? Are you coming into a poem going, okay, I want to write a poem about, you know, X, Y, and Z. Um, you know, how do I make it a little bit more manageable for the reader? Does that come into the humor in your poems? Or is that just a natural, like, yeah, like, like what does that look like for you? <laughs> I think it's a little natural in the sense that I tend to not, like, look at poems about climate change or uh, white privilege or, you know, like depression or um, alcoholism uh, head on. I never look at these, these topics head on. I come to those things uh, from the periphery. Like I, in my, I'll keep them in my peripheral vision. And that way, when I'm not really saying, okay, this is going to be a climate change poem, or this is going to be a poem about 
you know, um, confronting white fragility or, or whatever it happens to be that the poem wants to talk about. I always have it to the side. And I think that really helps because then I don't feel the need to be really wise or make some big statement about it. And because I, it, I'm not worried about those things, of course, that's when the interesting things and the, the little nuggets of wisdom do arrive into the poem because you're not looking for them. They just sort of know that, uh, you know, this is a safe place to be and, and they sort of arrive on their own volition. Yeah, no, I, I love that that comes somewhat naturally to you. I, I was going to ask about comedy and humor in your poems. And mm. so it's great that you mentioned a movie like that, um, yeah. that I am now very interested in checking out, especially as somebody whose uh, parents very much told them and showed them a lot of Monty Python. Uh, it right. sounds like I will I will have to get involved with this. So yeah. um, the other thing we mentioned, and, and I didn't plan this, but Brandy's question worked out sure. great. Um, was nostalgia. And I wanted to talk to you about this because mm -hmm. uh, I, I read the book a couple times here on my computer. I, I went through and I was underlining stuff. I mentioned before we started recording, I was having fun with playing with PDF annotations and stuff. It was great. Um, but on my most recent read, which was a couple days ago, um, one of the things I, I wrote down was uh, about nostalgia. And I wanted to ask about how you see it playing into this book. Um, there's a line that I wanted to write down. Oh, I did write it down. Thank goodness. Um, you wrote writing elegies for childhood is how I mark my territory from territorial is the poem. Right. Uh, and I, and I wanted to ask about nostalgia and elegies for childhood. Are these the okay. same thing? How do you conceptualize them? Who knows? I, I I'm just interested sure. to pick your brain about it. Uh, I would say my first two books are very much the engine of those books was nostalgia. They're, books about growing up in, you know, a small community, Stainer, Ontario, uh, just uh, on Georgian Bay, um, uh, you know, beneath the Niagara Escarpment. And it was really important for me when I was learning how to, uh, to write poems. I also really wanted to touch the past because I felt like that was a very magical time in my life. Uh, I certainly continue to write poems about nostalgia through my third book. But by the time I got to that fourth book, you know, life wasn't going so well for me. And, and the idea of writing about my life uh, and I'd already exhausted so much childhood. Right. That that uh, I really felt like I needed to talk about something other than my own memories, my own experience. And I really wanted to break free of that. And so I've done that right through the cloud versus grand unification theory and midlife action figure and deep fake serenade. But I really wanted with this book in particular, because my life is going so well again, uh, <laughs> everything seems to be going, you know, swimmingly. I wanted to find a way. Well, I think I've lost you there, Chris. Hmm. I cannot uh, hear you. Oh, are we there? I heard I heard you again now. I think I think we're back. Okay. <laughs> Sorry. This is uh this is a difficult one. Um hmm. I'm trying to think of what we can do because I'm not sure. Um normally I'm able to make this work are you are you still able to hear me yes absolutely okay so maybe we're good maybe we can try again sure for a fourth time oh my gosh i'm so sorry okay uh, I'll, I'll make i'm gonna make my nostalgia uh <laughs> answer a little bit shorter but yeah, absolutely sure okay um so <laughs> yeah no we're getting we're getting good at it now um yeah so uh Again, for the listener, uh, we've dropped our audio a couple times and we're trying to keep it going. We're trying to figure out if we can get through this one question that I've asked Chris a couple times now. Uh, Chris, I have been wondering about nostalgia in your work, and I'm wondering if you can tell me a little bit about the role it plays in this book and beyond. Okay, so in the first couple of books uh, that I wrote, my first two books, nostalgia was really the engine driving the poems. 
because I really wanted to be able to touch those experiences, at least in the time of the poem. And those experiences being my teenage years, they were very much a magical time growing up in a very small farming community. Stainer, which is near Georgian Bay here in Ontario, underneath the Niagara Escarpment. But by my fourth book, I wrote something uh, to the effect that nostalgia is a verdict for not living well. And at that time, life was not going so well for me. I was newly separated. I was newly sober. I was single. I was I was a young uh, dad to very little kids. So I wanted to write something other than about my life at the time. So that's why I began to change to writing about everything else but me. But with this next book, Alternator, I started writing a se sequence of narrative sonnets, unrhymed narrative sonnets. I was very much inspired by Diane Zeus's book of poetry, Frank Sonnets. And it was such a great, wonderful collection. And it inspired me to write a whole bunch. I wrote 55 sonnets and I boiled it down to about 24 for this book. Uh, so yeah, you know, nostalgia is a wonderful thing, but when your life isn't going very well, it, you know, it, it can also feel like this really oppressive thing, like knowing that you had th these wonderful times in your life and they're gone. But so, uh, you know, I, I like to write about the past, but I like to write about many, many other things as well. Yeah, fantastic. And, and I guess uh, I've asked you a couple questions here. I've asked you the same one a couple times. So for me, it feels like time for a bit of a reset and a regrounding with your work. So maybe it's a good time for me to ask you to head into a second reading for us. Okay, so I'm going to read a poem called Resemblances. Uh, it's from the middle section of Alternator. I've decided I look like a ham radio. Or if not a ham radio, someone controlling a dial, speaking into a microphone late at night, breathing. Who's out there? Over. I also look like a crumbling medieval castle whose moat has been drained, a fancy pen that smudges a petty dictator, even an army of hummingbirds. To be merely a human being is to be a thimble of troubles, a music box of impulses, the one always hungry to be too. I aspire to be better at multiplying images, to be a meadow or at least a person who would lay down in one amongst clover, honeysuckle, and dragonflies. To be a glass skyscraper, a mirrored hive of productivity, to be the match and the candle lit, to be the river and the current pushing it forward. When I was a kid, I only wanted to be freckle-free, better at sports, to pass my grades, maybe kiss a girl or two. Now I want to be the whole earth, spitting and spitting in a centrifuge of language to free words from their objects. No ideas, but in essences, candy and cave paintings, the garden and the serpent within it. Once I wished to be a mountain, but instead I grew up to be a gnome, a fountain of want, a robot on call. Sometimes when it's particularly quiet, I even feel like an empty band shell desperate for music or a street market full of nothingness or an angel who hates religious talk. Just follow my voice down the well, and you too can be an old hat full of sorrows, a watch abandoned in a drawer, a greeting card faded, an ancient message of love. Tell me who I approxim approximate now. Thank you for reading that for me. That's another one that I had as one of my favorites oh, from great. the book. So I'm, I'm really excited that you read that. Um, <laughs> I wanted to uh, jump back to, to one of the things we were talking about. So we, we've talked about nostalgia. We've talked about heavier themes. And it seems like maybe nostalgia was a way for you personally to escape some of those heavier moments uh, in yes. your life. To ground yourself in the nostalgia. And... Uh, this is a realization I don't know that I've ever come to, um, but I think I do the same thing. And I'm sure I'm not alone, and I'm sure you're not alone in that. I, I imagine a lot of us um, use nostalgia kind of as, you know, we, we, we were talking about a comfort movie earlier. Um, yes. The discussion went to nostalgia, and, and so there's comfort, obviously, in nostalgia. Um, but I wanted to mention, too, that, like, I, I was really excited to talk today, not just about your book and about poetry, um, but I know last time we talked was early on in my own sobriety 
And I right. wanted to mention that it stayed. It stuck around. I'm still doing it. And uh, oh, I think it's I think a, a large part of that was having a discussion with somebody who uh, has been there, who's interested in the same things as me, reading some of your work that touches on it and and just kind of seeing that you're not alone in that was really valuable for me. So I wanted to mention that oh, in the interview today. And uh, and make sure you know, because I'm almost at a thousand days, which is crazy. Oh, that's um, wonderful. So yeah, we're getting there. <laughs> but yeah. Yeah, you um, are. Yeah. Yeah. Um, For me, what, uh, particularly, I found the, like, I think I've said this to you before. I found the first two, three years totally doable, totally doable, but a little uncomfortable. But I would say after year three, just everything just felt better and better and better. And I certainly don't miss alcohol at all anymore. It's not even a, it's not even a thought, or if it is a thought, it's a passing thought, maybe a couple times a year now, which I, I never thought I would get to. So, so I, that's great to hear. Yeah. Thank you for, for that. And, and yeah, I, I feel like I'm starting to feel a lot more like that and so it's it's great to hear that that's that's yeah. the sort of trajectory that other people have been on to that's great um okay back to poetry back to writing um yeah i wanted to talk a, a little bit about um some more of the quotes that i liked from your book and i have some quotes sure. i have two here for you that i think are interesting takes on your perspective on poetry and i wanted to ask you about them so the first one is from the poem new apostles um, and it's a quote that says, a poem is an oath of eloquence. Now, I think this is a particularly interesting quote to bring up right now, because we were just talking about writing on heavier subjects. And I, I think the idea of eloquence may be counterintuitive to some of the things that, that you write about at times, but but you do bring a certain voice to them that, that makes them more palatable, as we've talked about in terms of like humor and that perspective. But I wanted to ask about this. What do you mean when you say a poem is an oath of eloquence? I always think of the idea of eloquence. I go back to that Coleridge quote about poetry, the best words in the best order. And so when I write poetry now, I'm thinking of, you know, of writing. I want an audience. I want people to read my poems. So I'm really thinking about what do do the general populace need from a poet in this day and age. And so for me, I, I, it's just very natural to talk about, you know, climate change and, uh, you know, self-checkout at the grocery store and how lonely and absurd and frustrating that is. And, uh, you know, grocery magnet robber barons and, but also with, you know, hope and humor in there, too, because I think those are the things that are really, really important. So I'm hoping I'm when I think of eloquence, I I'm hope I'm speaking eloquently about how we live now. You know, mm. I don't just want to uh, wrap myself in the blanket of nostalgia and, and say, you know, things were better when I was a teenager. I really want to write poems about what is happening right now with the world. And if that means I'm writing about wildfires in California or pilot whales, you know, uh, beaching themselves in huge numbers in, in Norway, so be it. That's what I'm writing about. But I'm hopefully also writing it with a, a certain level of uh, hope and optimism, too. Yeah, and, and this actually brings me to a question that uh, I can't take credit for. It's one that uh, one, of, one of my other recent guests asked to uh, another uh -huh. recent guest. Uh, and their question, Tom Call asked this question. Tom was asking if a poem has a responsibility outside of itself, and if so, what that responsibility is. Um, and that brings me to kind of what you're talking about here uh, in terms of, you know, these poems being... Topical is not the word, but addressing current issues, certainly. Um, I'm wondering if you see the poem as having a responsibility. I think the poet has a certain level of responsibility to address things that are going on. Uh, you know, whether that's modern politics, whether that is, um, you know, the awful trends that we're seeing right now, the regressive measures um, with you know, the whole debate of a uh, 
you know, abortion. That's just, it's absurd that we're, we're still debating religion versus science in, in this day mm-hmm. and age. So I do feel a certain amount of responsibility to address these things uh, as best I can, even uh, uncomfortable topics that, that might, another poet might back away from. And not that I'm offering any answers either, but I do feel like it's important to bring these things up because then I, I believe your reader will uh, tend to trust you more if if you are really talking about things that that everybody knows are important or it's causing a lot of people a, a great deal of anxiety. Uh, I think it's important to address these things. And even if, you know, I, I don't have a, a way forward for some of these things, I, I do feel it's important to bring them up in my poems. Well, I, I think that's one of the things that I really appreciate about your writing too, Chris, is that your speaker is not somebody who is prescriptive or uh, necessarily authoritative and and is very much willing to admit that it feels. Um, it, yeah. it feels like the speaker in your poems is observant and curious. And that's something that as a reader, I find a lot more enjoyable and relatable uh, than a speaker who is saying, look, this is what I see, this is how the world is. It's it's more uh, when I read a Chris Banks poem, I leave asking questions more than I leave with with answers to those questions. And I think that's arguably more valuable, um, especially when you're talking about these bigger issues. I don't think any one person has the answers. Right. And so doing this sort of writing and uh, posing these questions to your reader, rather, whether indirectly or directly is is super, super valuable. Yeah, I agree. Like that that's the only way to address these things for me. Uh that just it, it naturally goes fits with my poetic. So it's good to hear that that's what uh how I'm being read. Yeah, it, at least by me. I can't speak for everybody. Sure. No, uh, but yeah, absolutely. that's that's definitely something I appreciate about your writing. Um and speaking of things to do with your writing, Uh, I have one more quote that I wanted to discuss with you. Okay. Uh, And so this is one that I particularly liked. It's from Penny Arcade, which is another poem in the book. Uh, And you write, building a poem is like building a spider web without spinnerets. So instead of silk, you are stuck with popsicle sticks, colored yarn, and too much glue. Um, I love this. I have a bunch of questions about it, but my favorite part is just the idea of a poet sticking things together and seeing what works. I, I, I just really love this image. And I wanted to ask you uh, if this is how you see yourself building a poem. Yeah, I do. And I think it's such a fun, those are fun lines to quote, because at least for me, the evoke, you know, grade two art class where you're putting glue on popsicle sticks and, and you're, you know, trying to do some very prescriptive art lesson on, you know, build your own spider web and, put a little yarn spider in it or something of that nature. And yeah, I do see uh, sometimes when I'm trying to build an actual spider web, I, it feels often like I'm just stuck with glue and, and uh, popsicle sticks in, in yarn. But, uh, and I think it's maybe that's just an admission that, you know, we can never really get to the essence of, of what we're trying to do with language. Language is our best, um, medium for which to convey ideas but it's never sort of enough at least for the poet i I think that's we're always looking to write the poem that will change people's lives or or that will change our lives or that will finally tell us some truth to our face you know and and language rarely does but you do get glimmers of it and I, i you know the glimmers at least for me give me that little a shot of electricity and and that's enough so yeah no i i love that and i love the playful nature of that image too i think is yeah what i'm trying to get at it is just oh, it's, yeah, it's having fun with language and that's the feeling that i get when i read your work is that i can tell i i hope it's true that you are genuinely enjoying writing these poems and having fun oh absolutely 100 and when i don't enjoy writing a poem I stopped writing a poem and uh, and I immediately <laughs> junk it. Like I, I was working on a poem called Still Life with billboards and there were three billboards in it. And the first page was going really, really well. And I tried the ending several times. And then after about five hours, I said, you know, 
enough's enough. I'm not, I'm not enjoying myself anymore. So I just junked it. And that's fine. There's, you know, I remember Philip Levine saying, I don't care if I write a bad poem, mm. you know, I'll, I'll write a good poem next. And, and that I've always keep that in my mind. So it, like, I don't care if I write a bad poem, I just want to have fun. Uh, and uh, if that is what's first and foremost in my mind, and then I'm trying to discover what the poem is about, I, I generally, generally tend to write good poems. So, Yeah, no, and, and it reminds me, we talked about him earlier, but I wanted to shout out again, Rob Taylor, and specifically one yeah. of his poems. He has a poem uh, that I believe is in a collection uh, beyond forgetting, celebrating Al Purdy, but uh if not there, it's at least surrounding Alperti in some way. But he has a poem uh, titled something like On Realizing Everybody Has Written a Few Bad Poems. Yes. And I, I go back to that one pretty often uh, as a reminder that it's it's part of it. We're going to screw up uh, and and it's OK to to do that as long as you are engaging in that playful side of language and you're you're working on it um, because you're right. The next poem might be the good one. You never know. Um, and yes. so not getting discouraged is hard, but it's, it's super important. And so I come back to Rob's writing a lot around that. Um, yeah, he's great. I, yeah. And, uh, I guess we're approaching the end of our episode. And so I just, I have to get two more things from you. One is a reading, but the first one is a question from you, Chris, for my next episode's guest. Okay. I guess my question is what is authentic in modern Canadian poetry? That's such a heavy Heavy question. And the reason I ask what is authentic in modern Canadian poetry is because I think it can be uh, answered many different ways. And I've written, hopefully, an, an essay that will appear in a book of creative nonfiction at some point about that very topic. So there you go. Okay, no spoilers from the essay, Chris, but you nope. may remember, I, I do turn this question around. So right. I'm going to ask you what you think is authentic in modern Canadian poetry. Oh, gosh, I forgot you did this. Okay, well, <laughs> I think it has to be uh, inside talking to inside, as Donald Hall once wrote, or it has to be um, a person, a thinking mind, a thinking consciousness, talking to another thinking consciousness. Uh, Stephen Dobbins wrote, there, you know, a window or sorry, a poem is a window that hangs between two people who otherwise live in darkened rooms. I think that is why we read poetry. I don't think we're going to read AI poetry anytime soon because it's mm. not a it's not a person. It's a thing talking yeah. to a thinking person. And so I don't think it can do it. But but what do I know? I'm older. So <laughs> no, I agree. I that's a really good point. I can think about you know, I'm a teacher. I know you're a teacher too, Chris. Yes. And uh, I, I get a lot of AI essays, unfortunately, from time to time. And right. I I see perhaps sometimes why people are gravitating towards it for writing things like that. But when it's a personal lived experience thing and the whole quality of a good poem, I think, comes from the perspective of the poet in most cases. I don't know what the draw would be either to, right. <laughs> to AI poetry. So yeah, no, that's yeah. a really good point. Yeah, I, I think that's a really good answer. And I'm excited to read your essay on that, uh, on authentic Canadian poetry and, and authentic yeah. poetry in general. That sounds great. Um, yeah, I guess my my last thing that I need from you before we call it a day here uh, is one more reading. Okay, so I'm going to read you uh, a poem, a non-rhyme sonnet from the last section of the book. And we were just talking about uh, trying to grapple with big issues, big uh, topics in, in a poem, and, and maybe not even really, you know, having answers for those things. And this is a poem about, about exactly that. I'm all out of idioms and apps and breadcrumbs to help me wander these deep, dark woods, these perishing fairy tale days without fairies or happy endings this is our only paradise and it is fallen still we have each other even if i let the lawn die without watering it and the house needs a fresh coat of paint why settle for the second rate because we can improve ourselves to the point of forgetting grief or love which is why i let the dishes pile in the sink and the chore list sits undone my mind reveling in life's want 
my eyes meeting your eyes, my desire, not one singular thing, but many things, dark wings murmuring above a field. Tomorrow, I will put the bookcase together, worship the ersatz, strum depression's black guitar strings, fear climate change, how it sits atop its treasure hoard of unrecycled plastic bottles swishing its tail, thinking of the future, a world on fire. But for today, no fears when I'm with you, the witch is dead, the way out is clear. There we go. Thank you very much, Chris, for reading that poem, the other poems, asking and answering questions. It's so nice to reconnect with you and talk about this book. Um, and I, I'm really excited to talk, hopefully, about the next one sometime soon as well. Um, <laughs> but yeah, my, my apologies again for our dropped call a couple of times. Oh, but no problem. I, yeah, no, I appreciate you sticking around and answering the questions. It's been really nice to talk. My pleasure, Andrew. Thank you for having me on. So there you are. That was me chatting with Chris Banks. Um, Chris, thank you if you're listening to this for your patience. Um, it was hard to get our technology to work for this episode. And so Chris coming back and being kind enough to record with me, um, despite those bumps, it's very generous. So I appreciate that, Chris. Um, and thank you for your your words of support and encouragement um, in writing and beyond. It's It's great to be able to connect with you. Um, for those listening at home, as I mentioned at the top of the episode, uh, I'm going to try and put some more out pretty quickly here. I've had to push things because of a concussion, and I'm just getting back to screens. This Editing this has been a bit of an interesting time, but I'm surviving and doing okay, and we've got the episode here now, so we're good to go. Um, but I just wanted to remind you that, hey, I, I got more coming for you. So stick around, subscribe to the show, rate and review it. That, of course, helps people who haven't heard the poems of these poets hear them for the first time, which, as you know, if you've listened before, is the entire point of why I do this. Um, of course, in addition to the selfish point of I want to talk to the people who write the books I like, which is extremely cool. Um, <laughs> beyond that, I don't have too much else to add, so I hopefully will be chatting with you soon um, digitally via Page Fright. Um, but until the next interview, my name is Andrew French. I'm going to change this to I'm on Instagram at Andrew W. French. And this, this of course, has been Page Fright. Mm -hmm.